<laughs> I think you guys would be amazed at how many takes it requires me to complete these simple introductions. Every time I review a recording, I say to myself, downward inflection mark. You have to have more downward inflection. If you don't know, downward inflection at the end of a sentence makes it more powerful and tells the prospect, or in this case guest, you're confident with your message. Most often, this change in pitch indicates confidence, finality, power, and certainty. So if there's any lesson I want you to take from this podcast, it's the notionality of downward inflection. Mike check one two one two. Mike check one two one two. Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. In this episode, I had the opportunity to chat again with tech entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist Sanjay Singhal. Sanjay has co-founded six companies and is an active and ongoing investor in over twenty startups. In early 2019. Sanjay established the Nikayan Foundation with hopes of promoting psychedelic science and bringing to the forefront novel medicines for mental health. More importantly, however, he joins Cody Lakefold in the upper echelon of guests to have survived two appearances on The Madness. In September of this year, the Nikayan Foundation announced a $5 million transformational gift in support of psychedelic psychotherapy at the University Health Network. The gift is the largest ever donation in support of psychedelic science and research in Canada. In this episode, Sanjay and I dive into the catalyzing impact this gift intends to have for those suffering from mental illness. The Nikayan Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy will be housed at the University Health Network, which is a multi-campus healthcare institution encompassing Toronto General and Western Hospitals, the Princess Margaret, Toronto Rehab, and the Michener Institute of Education. These are some of the most reputable healthcare institutions in the world. In 2021, for example, the Toronto General Hospital was named the number four hospital in the world and the number one hospital in Canada for a third year in a row. That speaks volumes to the validity that psychedelic medicine is gaining in mainstream medicine. Each human being is complex with a unique history and circumstances, as well as gifts, resources, and skills. With compassion for the human condition, Sanjay and the Nikayan Foundation are working to reduce suffering and foster well-being through our shared humanity, interconnectedness, and of course, drugs. And now I bring to you Sanjay Singhal. Um, Sanjay, my friend, my, um, second time having you on, I was just going back in, uh, in the record, the record books and it was February 9th, 2021 episode two. 
that you joined uh, for the podcast. Lots has happened for you since February, and um, you've made a historic donation through the Nakayan Foundation, your foundation, to the University Health Network. And um, I, I think it'd just be great to talk through um, what's happened since February. I know, I imagine there's been a number of different opportunities that have been presented to you related to making uh, financial contributions to furthering the field of psychedelics to research. And um, first and foremost, it's, it's great to see you. And thank you for agreeing to come on for for a second crack at the uh, Confronting the Madness. Thanks for having me back, Mark. This is, uh, this is fun. I love talking about this stuff. So I beat, first of all, I was surprised. And I know this is a, the intention or your intention. And maybe I wasn't reading uh, the, the news enough, but I was surprised by uh, the lack of media attention that your your donation had made your donation had made have got, had gotten and so i'm just going to be the first to say it all the legacy media outlets um i beat peter Mansbridge, don lemon uh the brother of the governor who's the pervert all to um have you as the first guest to talk about this historic donation because i do think it's <laughs> going to be a um i do think it's going to be we're going to look back in time and see this, I think, very much as an inflection point, um, amongst other things, of course, but in Canada in particular. So uh, congratulations and um, and thank you for taking a risk on trying to further novel treatment modalities for individuals that are suffering because there's a lot of individual suffering out there. Um, so maybe, maybe walk us through, if you don't mind, uh, Sanjay, your, your, your process of decision-making to create the Nikkeian Center for Psychedelic, Psychedelic Psychotherapy through the University uh, Health Network, and why, in the end, that's the place you chose to make such a significant donation. Yeah, let's see. Um, well, I, we've been thinking for a while that it would be really nice to, to fund a university in Canada. Mm. Right? All of our studies up until um, up until this announcement were, you know, it was uh, Imperial College in London, England. Um, MAPS, which is a multi-site uh, study, but in Denver uh, uh, is where the principal investigator is, Adele La France for anorexia. And then USONA Institute, that's a nonprofit in Madison, Wisconsin, that's doing work with 5-MeO-DMT as well as psilocybin. Um, we just hadn't seen any great proposals from inside Canada. They're starting to happen now. You know, uh, there, there's a gentleman, Alexander Lehman at uh, McGill, that's developing some uh, some proposals. It seems like UBC might be getting back into it. Um, so, but so two things happened. One was we got a, a proposal for a small study, a few hundred thousand dollars um, from Emma Hapke at University of Toronto, which is a, so University Health Network is the University of Toronto's hospital network. Um, and so we got a proposal for a small palliative care study and uh, and we responded to them saying, hey, this is great. You know, like we'd love to support UHN in our backyard. 
in Toronto, can you think bigger? <laughs> and uh, I actually, and they came back and they had doubled the size of the study, uh, I think a couple of months later. Um, but it went from something like 350000 up to $700,000. Right. No, you need to think bigger, like think right. bigger. Uh, we yeah. want to create, you know, a, a real hub for Canadian yeah. psychedelic research. And we'd love to do it in Toronto. Um, and so over the course of several months of negotiations, they got all of the big guns involved at UHN, decided this was a worthwhile project and came came back to us with, I think, a uh, uh, proposal, something like a $15 million proposal over 10 years. And I was like, oh, that's too big. Okay, we can't fund, <laughs> can't fund that whole thing. Um, yeah, but, uh, uh, but, but initially we were going to do two and a half million and and say go raise the next two and a half million somewhere else and that'll fund you for the first three years and by then you'll be making lots of progress there'll be lots of money coming in yeah um i was getting a little frustrated that people weren't spending the foundation's money fast enough uh there seemed to be just these constant delays and not just covid related delays just academic delays i don't know what every study we'd sponsored and so i was considering taking another few million and creating our own research center, the Nikkein Research Institute. Mm. Uh, we've actually gotten quite far down the road of-, of Like a not-for-profit not, not entity that you would fund through the foundation? Exactly, yeah, yeah not-for-profit. Yeah, yeah. uh, the idea being that I, as an entrepreneur, I could use my business sense and my my uh, desire for efficiency and speed and everything. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, because I'm not an academic. Uh, I was warned by a few people when I talked about this idea. So half the people I talked to said, that's brilliant. You guys should do your own research institute. It'll be, it'll be awesome. The other half of the people said, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, this stuff is harder than it looks and you will encounter all the same problems that the academic institutions are encountering. Um, so maybe use your efforts to help them rather than do it your own. Then I had a psychedelic session where I asked, myself the intent you know what's my path for the next few years um the message came back uh don't worry about it it's all in control whatever you do is fine right uh in the moment that's the message right. that came back the next yeah. day i asked myself the question again and i felt like my right brain which can't normally talk was pounding on the inside of my head saying don't do it don't do it don't do it like work through other people give your money to someone else do mm -hmm. not create your own research institution, like really emotional right. mm. uh, reaction. So it was like, well, okay, can't do it now. Um, and called up my co-director, Linda, at the foundation and said, um, we're going to double the donation to UHN and turn it into a real psychedelic center and, and get tightly involved with them rather than trying to fund them and do something in parallel ourselves. So wow. say, the drugs made me do it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you know what I find so interesting about that story is, uh, aside from the drug, the drugs made me do it comment, is so often I find in less so in academia, but in even healthcare is uh, just the um, the the lack of of aspirational thinking in terms of I think people are scared to ask for for money, and mm -hmm. so like I, I've experienced this so many times where like your story, it's like oh, okay tepidly saying I need just 350, which is a lot of money, right? In certain people's orbits. And then it's like, no, you got to think bigger. 
but $700,000 isn't bigger, you know? And so I'm glad that you kept on pushing them. And I find it hilarious that I'm sure as soon as they got the uh, senior administrators involved, they go, no, okay. We, we know what, we know what bigger is, but uh, it's, it's hilarious that uh, they couldn't find the uh, common ground. So, so $5 million, you, you've, you've made that investment and that's over a period of, is, is it five years, 10 years? Uh, five years. Five years. Okay. And can we, can we just talk through, um, you, you, you shared with me this, this, um, five pager that, um, goes through an overview of what you're hoping to accomplish. And I, I have a couple, I have a couple questions and, and comments, but, um, at a high level, maybe we can just talk through some, some of the, some of the programming that, um, that you're involved with some of it, which I think is quite interesting and unique. And then also I did want to, I wanted to dive into um, the values that you've created because, you know, so often there's values of a, of a for-profit, not-for-profit company and, and they, they're, they're very vanilla or they're very uh, copy and paste. And I, I, I really found, uh, and maybe this is you injecting your, um, world paradigm in, into them, but I found them very powerful. Um, but I want to put a pin in that and come back and just maybe talk about some of the research. Let's just start with the, the Pearl um, research trial, as well as the the Pearl trial for caregivers, which I want to I want to share a story with you. But could you just talk through the the impetus behind that and? Uh, what appealed to you in particular about about that research? Sure. Well, this is a research area. You know, fundamentally, what UHN decides to do is going to be is going to be driven by the vision of their researchers. And Emma Hapke and Daniel Rosenbaum are tightly involved with Pearl um, treatment for palliative care patients, and that's not at its core psychedelic in nature, but it's a mm. particular approach to um, uh, treating anxiety. And they're going to add psychedelics to that, psilocybin specifically, uh, as a way of, of accelerating the therapy. Like this, the center that we're creating is fundamentally on psychotherapy research. I believe mm-hmm. psychedelics are a tool to assist uh, talk therapy. Um, or, or, and, and it doesn't have to be traditional talk therapy, but mm-hmm. to assist the process of you thinking about your life mm-hmm. and making your life better. Do you, think it's, to, do you think it's also a tool to... It, it um, expedite the process of psychotherapy as well. Is that how you think about it? As Absolutely. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's that it just it it'll let you do five years of psychotherapy in in one five hour session. Yes, which is fantastic. That's been my own personal experience. I've heard this repeatedly from, from other people. Um, so so that's why it's called the psychedelic psychotherapy center as opposed to the psychedelic sciences or psychedelic anything right. else. Um, and. We already know that psychedelic therapy works for treating anxiety in palliative care patients. What they're, and we only wanted to fund new research. What they're doing here is testing out this other approach, Pearl, um, as well as, and, and I apologize, I can't speak to the details of Pearl. It's not, because uh, I'm, I'm, nope. I'm not a therapist myself. But um, the part that we pushed hard on was giving the psychedelic and the anxiety treatment to the caregivers, not mm-hmm. just to the patients themselves. Yes. Uh, we thought that was the groundbreaking part. They're the people who have to live with the grief um, for years, often after uh, after the patient has uh, passed on. 
Um, and so we we're quite excited that they were that they were willing to prioritize that part of the study. Yeah, that was so. So that's the first uh, pilot study in the world to look at psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for caregivers, um, which is an often overlooked group with high distress. My dad, um, my dad had glioblastoma, which is a stage four, um, stage four brain cancer, and um, ironically, was misdiagnosed with it being a um, um, something else four different times, and then. I often think about his end of life experience, which was, you know, two years of, let's just call it suboptimal living mm-hmm. and um, a lot of stress and anxiety for my mom, myself, my brothers. And so this, this really resonated to me at that level. Um, it, the other piece of it was I was in Saskatoon at the time where my dad was in hospital, whereas my, my older brother was in Holland and my younger brother was in Lethbridge. And so, you know, I, at the very least had the opportunity to um, get closure, whereas they were um, separated from that. And so I think it always lingers with them and it'd be interesting to know if any sort of um, virtual or digital offering of that, if you can't um, get back to see your loved one, um, would be an, would be an option in the future, but I don't know. And so, so that was, that was the add on the caregiver piece that really motivated you guys to continue the work that they had already been doing with, with Pearl, which is psilocybin assisted existential attachment and relational therapy for end of life distress in patients with advanced cancer. So presumably they were doing that work previously just without the psilocybin component attached to it right yeah, yeah. I think yeah. there's something called calm, calm therapy that's part of the pearl protocol right yeah managing um, cancer and living meaningfully piece of of the program um and so the second research piece and tell me tell me how much of this i guess how much of this is all been research driven versus how much of this did you advocate for wanting to include as part as part of the center, and because I asked that because uh, the next the next research um, area was around psilocybin assisted psychotherapy for body dysmorphic disorder. Um, did, is that something that you personally wanted to see, or is that something that was brought to your attention and you said yes to? Um, well, I think as I, I probably said last time I was on. Um, my daughter unfortunately suffers from anorexia so anything mm-hmm. in that in that field is something that's going to be of interest to us but we didn't push for that study it happened to come because a particular expert Dave Castle from Australia with a lot of experience in that that disorder um, was interested in working with the uh, UHN team and mm-hmm. doing a study in that area so when they when when they were thinking bigger it was right. like well what else what else can we treat with psychedelics and that that opportunity came came up so the idea was we want to treat people but as a or sorry we do the research but as a foundation our only objective is trying to make these treatments accessible for everybody basically right. ev- everybody should have the opportunity to try psychedelic therapy whether honestly whether they're they've got a dsm diagnosis or not like you don't need a psychiatrist to tell you of anxiety to have some kind of existential trauma and the number of people who are full high functioning members of society that 
have tried psychedelic therapy or friends of mine because they they knew how to get access to the therapy and they're now living better lives lives with less suffering and less anxiety um everybody should have that opportunity so how do we make that happen research is one thing to make it legal um we have to figure out what it works for and what it doesn't work for that's also research mm-hmm. um then there's education and the missionary institute at uhn is going to be doing education of therapists or training of therapists uh with mbma um and then it's actual actual clinical treatment, getting the, the treatment out there in an accessible way. And there, there was a conversation internally, I think, at UHN on whether the word research should be part of this, the name of the center, because they really wanted to use it for treatment as well. Yeah. But I think in, mm-hmm. the, in the end, um, research became part of it, but it is right. just going to be a straight up treatment center as well. Yeah, well, it's very holistic in the sense that you're doing research education and training, which is an interesting component of it. It seems like a big component of it because talk, talk a little bit about like the certificate in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. What, what are the prerequisites for an individual to receive that certificate? And this is where I find an interesting dichotomy between psychedelics as they enter into mainstream western medicine right where um you know if you if you think of the um the culture outside of western medicine and who can or cannot uh become a guide or a somebody to help you through your psychedelic journey is really not predicated based on any sort of formal education right and so how do you think about that um, as it pertains to that certificate, and more broadly, how the integration of psychedelics into Western medicine is going to be received or integrated, I guess, because there, there's there's some dualities there that aren't necessarily compatible. And I want to come back to your your value statements to talk about what I mean by that after. I, I got to tell you, that I, I'm conflicted here on the issue of of training and evaluation and licensing and uh, uh, discipline of psychedelic therapists. Right now, the best compromise we've come to is that in order to receive psychedelic psychotherapy training, you have to already have a license in some form of, of um, therapy, whether it's social work or psychology or, or um, okay. clinical medicine. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of guides and perhaps even some of the best guides that have no such formal licensing, mm-hmm. but have been in the, operating in the underground or, or informally or with, or with unregulated substances like right. MEO, DMT. Um, so they're not breaking any laws, but they're, but they're operating in a realm that medical science hasn't entered yet. Right. What, what, what do we do with these people? Uh, there's got to be a way to qualify them as well for, for treating. Well, I've seen the effects, you know, this isn't restricted to psychedelics. Um, I'm sure you've seen it as well is, you know, a therapist that works with you like, or, or works for you rather mm-hmm. um, is very different from a therapist that doesn't. And it doesn't mean they're incompetent. It's just sometimes there's a, this therapeutic alliance that works and it becomes more powerful. If you're going to do five years of therapy in five hours, you better have a good relationship with that therapist. Yes. Um and how do we make sure that the therapists who are trained and who are out there practicing, who have all this power in their hands, mm-hmm. um, are are competent and empathetic individuals and, and good people? 
we haven't got an answer to that yet. Those, those licensing bodies haven't, haven't been created. Right, right. And that's why it's, this is an innovation education hub, really, because the other piece I think about is, you know, the underground um, deliverers of psychedelic experience will oftentimes have a significant amount of their own lived experience as well. And so that's obviously a, a beneficial factor in be, being a guide because you, you would know uh, intuitively what, what an individual's experience, whether it's good, bad, or, or ugly during the, during the journey. Whereas in, in this situation, I would presume that you're not going to require or nor could you require um, individuals to either disclose or, you know, take psilocybin as part of the certificate. How do you, how do you grab or talk about that? Well, uh, there seems to be this, we don't have any research to support it, but a very strong consensus in the therapy therapeutic community that experiential training is the best training. And that unlike so you don't have to have had your leg sawed off to be able to <laughs> to, to perform perform orthopedic surgery, mm-hmm. but um, in the therapeutic realm, it better it helps you a lot to do therapy yourself before you try and do therapy on somebody else. Right. And if you're going to try a particular modality of therapy, say cognitive behavioral therapy, you should experience it on the receiving side before you try and and administer it to someone else. Yes. And the belief is that that that's true of psychedelic therapies that you should you should understand what the patient's going through by doing it yourself. And so that is part of the requirement actually for the UHN program is that the MDMA therapy training will will involve taking MDMA and being I guess therapized <laughs> if that's the right verb. <laughs> I don't know if it is but I like it. Okay, so that that is in fact a requirement of the MDMA pro certificate program. Yeah. Okay. Right. And is that that's legal or that's regulated or how does that talk about that? Yeah. They'll have to get a section 56 exemption from the the federal minister of health um, in order to be able to offer MDMA to anybody. Um, And because it's operating as part of a research center, they'll also have a research license to use these medicines. Mm. Um, But it's two different things. One is to give them to healthy people with no other, with no diagnoses as well as to just handle the medicine as part of the research study. Oh, wow. That's, that's fascinating. Um, we were talking about this a bit offline, but there's also going to be a five uh, MEO DMT for PSD uh, program. And it says you're working to build the capacity. So I presume that um, this is going to take some time from a administrative bureaucratic Legal um, perspective, regulatory, or how does that get re- Regulatory. So what's happening mm-hmm. is 5-MEO in, 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 in the wild is, is typically taken uh, as, a, as a vapor, like uh, so inhaled. Mm-hmm. Um, but to control the dosage more precisely, you really should be using inter, intramuscular um, injection, IM mm-hmm. injection. Mm-hmm. And so USONA Institute in the U.S. is the only nonprofit. There are some for-profit companies doing this, but they're the nonprofit that's taking um, injectable 5-MeO down the FDA approval path. They're doing the safety studies um, right now, uh, should be finished towards the end of this year. And we'll do the first inhuman studies next year mm-hmm. um, uh, for dosing, uh, I guess, dosing evaluation. 
um, we expect the first real clinical studies for actually treating somebody can't happen until 2023. Um, so we're just we're getting through all the, the preliminary work as fast as possible. It is possible, and there's a lot of excitement inside uh, Nikayan as well as UHN to accelerate that by a year and do some in-human studies, investigator-initiated uh, studies with Health Canada's approval in 2022. Um, we'll see. Let's let's see. We're, 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 that's a debate that's going on internally right now on what what we might decide to treat. Um, mm-hmm. There's you know five meo. It's you're in and out totally end to end in three hours, uh, whereas psilocybin and MDMA can both be 12 hour experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so being only three hours, and you're also kind of out of it during a lot of the time. So there's no, um, there's less requirement for a licensed therapist to be there to interact with you. Right. Just as much requirement for them to be there to make sure you're safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the costs go down dramatically. Both because it's a much shorter experience. The, 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 the intense part of the experience is only 15 minutes long. And then there's a big container around that. But what makes us as a foundation so excited about 5-MEO in particular is that short duration of action. That instead of say uh, uh, a $2,000 all day treatment, maybe it's mm-hmm. a $300 two hour treatment. And that makes a tremendous difference when it comes to people's willingness to, to try. Oh, absolutely. And and also, um, I mean, not having taken it, but, you know, given that you're not, you're essentially unconscious, would that be accurate to say? Or how would you describe your experience? I would and say it, the, the part of my brain that uses language and that records things was offline. Was offline. The, I see. Yeah. But, but but I was fully conscious. So, right. So what, I wasn't okay. unconscious. Yeah. Right. I guess I'm tr- trying to do a a comparator between a psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD in terms of the risk profile of having a bad trip versus the risk profile of um, DMT and having a bad trip. Would you say it's lower bec- because of your state of consciousness and the duration of or no i would say i would say the risk of having a trip that was kind of a harrowing negative experience is probably similar on both sides but with with a an experienced guide um that doses you properly and watches over you the risks in both cases are are negligible Mm -hmm. um but uh, but genuinely there. The thing with 5-MeO is because it's so intense and it's so sensitive to dose, you just have to be a little bit more careful like, yeah. with how much you're taking. Like you can take a handful of mushrooms and then and you know meet your dead ancestors and have it be a kind of a freak out experience. Yeah. Um, but after 5-MeO, you would maybe take too much and you wouldn't even know what happened because you wouldn't be able to explain it. But now all of a sudden you're like super anxious and just nervous all the time. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that happening. Not... Not directly. It's more like media accounts as opposed to right. um, uh, any therapist I know actually ever having that experience. But who, but the, who was the author that wrote about? Was it Strauss that wrote about uh, the uh, research uh, about Stra- DMT research? Yeah, that was Strauss- Rick Strassman. Yeah, Rick Strassman. Yeah, um, yeah. Did, so, you read, did you read that book? Yeah, I did. It was, yeah. it was a it was a great uh, it was a great read. But important to distinguish too, what Rick wrote about was NNDMT, 
which mm. when people say DMT, that's the DMT they're talking about. It's made from a tree bark typically. Um, it's the root ingredient in ayahuasca. But 5-MeO-DMT is in a related family, but it is different. Mm. So NN-DMT, also short acting, 20 minutes, a half hour, 5-MeO-DMT. This comes from the Sonoran Desert Toad. It's the venom of that oh, toad. Right. Yes. Discovered only in the in the, the 1940s in the U.S. Um, or at least that's the earliest knowledge we have of it. Um, whereas regular DMT has been in use for thousands of years in mm. indigenous cultures. Um, I, yeah, and, I I found part of that book that was fascinating and funny. Where he, um, I think it was in New Mexico, what is he doing the studies? And um, yeah. he goes to his supervisor because this has all been approved or whatever, and. He's trying to get the dosage right, and then he asks him, "Like, is it okay if I give, um, like, we're giving? I'm, just, I don't even know if it's in milligrams or two hundred milligrams mm-hmm. of um, DMT to patients." And they they said it wasn't enough, and so I'm thinking of increasing the dose to the six hundred. Is that okay? And then his supervisor says to him, "Well, you're the only one that's uh, doing this work in the entire world, so you tell me, is it okay?" And he goes, yeah, yeah, I think so. And then he, he gave them the dosage, and it was, it was, it was far, far too much. But um, yeah. Any, <laughs> anyways, yeah. Anyways, yeah. And the problem, the problem with those experiences is you're there the whole time. I mean, meeting aliens or right, like that. Yeah. It's... Well, that yeah, I think that was the end of Strossman's book. Is all about, or, yeah. Anyways, we don't we don't need to go down that uh, that rabbit hole. So you are the uh, primary funder, obviously with the $5 million contribution, how actively engaged? I know there's obviously the donor academia separation, but how actively engaged do you want to be in terms of the center? Is there going to be an advisory committee or how do you see your involvement now that you've initiated the, the um, center? Um, I expect we'll operate through having a really good relationship with the main researchers there. So we get together with the, uh, with the, with the group of clinicians doing the research at least once a month um, okay. to just talk about what they're working on, what they've learned, um, trying to make sure we go to the same conferences. So more involved than we have been with say maps in Imperial college where mm-hmm. we maybe talk to them once, once every six months. Um, and it's really with those guys. It really was write a check, have a conversation once in a while. That's, right. That's it. With UHM, we want we want to be more part of it, but not formally. There's no actual governance yeah. or advisory. Yeah, yeah, community. yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, what is the what has the reception been by UHN? And obviously, the researchers I'm sure are absolutely thrilled. How is the upper crust? felt about it in terms of taking this on is now this has become the flagship psychedelic center in can in Canada, effectively, maybe North, but am I wrong in saying uh, that? In Canada, in Canada, in Canada uh, for I, sure. In, in North America, I think Johns Hopkins and um, uh, UCSF. And yeah. The, the probably the most similar to what we're doing here is the mass general in Boston, which is Harvard's mm. uh, teaching hospital, um, they've put together a psychedelic research program, which is very similar to what we're trying to do here at UHM. And um, that's brand, that's brand new, also, is it not? That is brand new, also. That yeah. that was about six months prior yeah. to the UHN announcement. And I, 
You mentioned earlier, it may, it may have been before we, we started recording, that um, you were surprised at the lack of uh, media coverage of mm -hmm. the of this announcement. And honestly, I may have made a tactical error there. I didn't push hard on media coverage. There's there's some coverage that'll come. We're doing the actual um, uh, an event on October 20th to announce okay. this. And there'll be a okay. little bit of media coverage associated with that. But I didn't go for a big splash um, in the national Canadian media uh, because I, it, just, it didn't occur to me that it was that important, honestly. And now I'm wondering, now I'm questioning that. <laughs> I should have. Well, well, uh, well Sanjay, you know. can I just give you my own personal perspective for what it's worth? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, I think it's, very, very significant for a number of reasons. One, everybody's already talking about psychedelics in the private sector. It's it's become common nomenclature, even amongst those who have no idea about psychedelics or mental health or anything. Now their interest is like, okay, can I make money off this? Like I can make like I could have made off cannabis, you know, like mm -hmm. that's how a lot of people are thinking about it. And so it's I think it's top of mind, I would say in the public not top of mind for all people in the public, but it's starting to get that traction. And now that there's this historic donation made to a network of some of the most reputable hospitals in the world, like Toronto general hospitals rated uh, like the fourth, fourth best hospital in the world. And so wow. it's, is, is that, is that not, let me, let me it, go back. It, it, it may be, I, I, uh, Toronto General Hospital is rated the number four hospital in the world and is the number one hospital in Canada for a third year in a row. And that's part of the University uh, Health that's Network. network. And, so, yeah. and so, you know, it's it's not just somebody, A, it's not just somebody throwing $5 million at something because he has a, you know, anecdote. He has, he has a superficial personal passion for it. It's somebody who's thought deeply about this created his own foundation, which is also unique to Canada, made a historic investment to one of the most um, established health networks in the country, if not North America. And for me, I see this as a, a very significant uh, moment for um, mental health care treatments that have not new mental health care treatments that have not been made available uh, for the past 40 years. And so given how topical mental health is as well, um, you know, and I don't know, maybe you, d you don't want, I think, I think there would be merit to sharing this uh, um, widely in the media, not because you want necessarily the attention, obviously for yourself. And if you do, uh, you know, I, I would want the attention for myself. So I would have been splashed everywhere, but you don't strike me as a guy that really needs or wants that. But I think for continued validation, um, there's some merit in considering that as a um, as a strategy moving forward, but you know, that's just that's just a side editorial. Um, well, I, I think the the part that I didn't think all the way through was that when people see news about this, it validates it for them in their minds as a as a as a path of action for themselves. So if somebody's thinking maybe I'll try psychedelics, but um, Oh, it's, it's scary, you know, but, oh my gosh, but here it is on the front page of the Globe and Mail. Uh, yeah. That, that somebody's, that, that the university is doing this. Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay, well, maybe, maybe, I, maybe this is legit. 
and I need to get into that. So, and 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 for governments as well. I mean, they're not immune to the the same thing that a, an individual would be immune to because everybody has their preconceived notions about the word psychedelic, the history of psychedelics, and those are all very superficial, generally speaking. And so, I think the more that um, we can serve to dispel that by um, leveraging moments like this to um, reach a, a really broader audience. Um, it's, wor- it's worth considering. Um, I want to go back, though, to the values of the, of the Nikkean Center and talk through those a little bit because they struck me as, again, they're quite, they're quite deep and, and meaningful and they speak in a way around well, humanity is a value, but in terms of how we look at a patient or client that may be struggling or an individual, right? That, um, and I just want to read a couple. So your first value statements around humanity and you work with patients, but you say that you remember that each one is a complex human being with a unique history and circumstances, as well as gifts, resources, and skills. With compassion for the human condition, we seek to harness psychedelic research to reduce suffering and foster well-being. And, and I just thought, as soon as I read that, it, it just struck me very deeply that that was a very thoughtful and intentional way by which we can talk about how to um, treat individuals with mental illness or talk about how uh, professionals should be talking about treating individuals with mental illness, because I've never seen it written in such a compassionate way. And so a, is this, is this your work or is this the UHN uh, comms team's work? Um, I want to give you kudos if it is, and if it's not, then I, you know, but 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 well, talk about the values because that's, yeah, it's it's hard to write uh, it's hard to write values in a way that's not boilerplate, and I found these to be very deeply meaningful and also empathetic in a way that was that really struck a chord with me. That's great to hear. That's great to hear that that uh, that. It came across uh, that well. I cannot take credit for any of this. This is UHN's work. Um, <laughs> the 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 part that I'll say though is the interconnectedness piece. The fourth value, um, kind of to me, brings home the fact that all four of those values are are very. They they have a thread running through them: humanity, collaboration, diversity, uh, interconnectedness. Is the idea that we're not alone, right? Mm-hmm. You're in this. We're in this together. If you know, if we can get humanity to a point where we don't think about ourselves first, but think about our society first, right? If you, if you, there's not a single person out there who anti-vaxxers or not who think that vaccines are bad for society. They think vaccines are bad for them. But if you mm-hmm. thought first about society and what's going to be best for the for the species or for your tribe or for your village, um, like, of course you're going to wear a mask. Of course you're going to get vaccinated, right? Because whether it's good for you personally or not, it is better for the group. Um, we need everybody to think like that. We need to, you know, at the end, I, 
before I started getting into you know my own psychedelic journey, things I thought I, I thought I understood. Uh, sorry, not understood. Let's take homelessness mm-hmm. as a as a as a problem. Um, I had decided that this was a problem the governments had to solve. That it was that there was some systemic aspects to this, but that me giving a dollar to the guy on the corner wasn't going to help his homelessness situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's happened now is that I still don't think me giving a dollar to him is going to help the situation, but I acknowledge that I have to solve this problem, right? That that, that person is part of my tribe and that mm-hmm. we need to all work together to find a solution as opposed to just me going along with my privileged life and thinking, well, and that person's responsible for his life or her life. It's mm-hmm. no, we're all in this together. Um, and because psychedelics breed this sense of thinking, we're all in this together, that there's a sense of radical interconnectedness uh, in the universe. Um, they're going to be tremendous, a tremendous boon for society, for the flourishing of humanity, um, because we're all going to start working together in the same direction. How amazing mm-hmm. is that going to be? Right? No. Everybody pulling in their own direction. Yeah. And I think, well, two things that really struck me about this is one, and I experienced this uh, several years ago where I thought, you know, any sort of idiosyncrasies or anxieties that I had were unique to me because, I mean, I was one of the only ones that experienced that because when you look at somebody's exterior, um, everything seems fine in their lives. And then if you look at celebrities, everything seems fine in their lives. But, you know, over time and the more you get to know people and yourself and the human condition, you know, I don't care what your privilege is or lack of privilege in life. You know, we are all trying to transcend some form of suffering. And so to acknowledge that we are all complex human beings with our own unique histories and circumstances and look at them as um, gifts and resources and skills is to empower the individual whomever they may be. They may be the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, or they may be that homeless person on the street. It, the, the, the statement stands true for both individuals. And the other piece I would say, you know, broadening your statement around the homeless person example and giving them a dollar and whose responsibility that is, is, and it speaks to interconnectedness is I, I truly believe that we're all nodes in a network. And, you know, if you know a thousand people, you're one person away from a million people. And if you, and then you're two people away from a billion people and that every, and this is going to s- start sounding like the butterfly effect. So don't start looking at me like a Mastin Kutcher right now, but you know, if it, it, I do believe that that dollar given is going to have some form of ripple effect across across time and society that we never really know uh, what that's going to do for that individual or the individuals in their nodes of network. So um, the second value is around collaboration. And I just want to jump to, you talk about reciprocity and interdisciplinary scholarship and respect for existing cultures. Uh, It's the last sentence that I want to talk to you about a little bit more. And it's around the commitment to open science. And, you know, there's been, I think, some 
in the pri in the private sector, I think Tim Ferriss and Christian Angemeyer had some sort of this might have been more around patents and mm -hmm. you know, the privatization of psychedelics, but I think open science speaks to this in a more broad broad context. How, I mean, obviously, from an academic perspective, open science is only going to encourage more science and um, people leveraging others' intellects. And so I guess the question is, what is your perspective on open science, both in academia, but also in the private sector? And how do you think about it from a from an enterprise that's trying to make money um, and is you know, some of these enterprises are trying to patent, you know, every single thing they possibly can. Um, so two questions, the open science question, and then the question around the private industry of psychedelics and how some actors are maneuvering in that space. Yeah. Um, on open science, I would say society as a whole has advanced because of open science, right? It's, you know, I, as a pure matter of public policy, I, I would go in and, and revamp patent law pretty dramatically. There's lots mm. of parts of society where, where you don't need patents to encourage innovation. People don't mm -hmm. write music um, because they get copyrights. They don't, they, and inventors don't invent things. They may invent things because they want to make money, but they don't invent things so they can get patents. Um, and so if you need to protect your, investment by knowing that you're going to have a restricted period of of um commercial i guess monopoly uh -huh. uh, on on a product that's great i have no issue at all with patents and outsized profits going to people who've generated something with outsized value mm -hmm. right if you mm -hmm. spend like maps right now is has spent already over 100 million dollars it'll be probably 200 million by the time they're done on developing maps as a, or sorry, developing MDMA as a commercial treatment for PTSD, um, it, it good on them if they get some period where during which they get to recoup that investment. Mm -hmm. But in the end, in the end, if patents didn't exist, they would still do it because that two hundred million came from philanthropists. It didn't mm -hmm. come from investors. Right. They still would have done it, and um, they would focus all their energy on deploying MDMA as a PTSD treatment and making money from charging people for that that treatment and people will happily pay tens of thousands of dollars for that. And they'll make all that money back. Um, I think, you know, so th this is my, I don't know which ism this is, but I think bands should make money from performing their music live, not from charging people mm. every time they, they uh, listen to it on the radio. It's not that you shouldn't listen, get some money for that, but um, do some work, right. And get out there and, and make money. If you invent something great, uh, make it usable for people and then charge them to use it. You shouldn't get money just for having come up with an idea. Mm, right? mm, that, yeah. That, that, that part of us patent law has, has got to go. Yes. Um, um so th there's the other two, which I'm going to, I, I shouldn't say I'm going to gloss over them, but is around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I like the notion of the spirit of ra radical inclusion added into your work. And then the last one, uh, is around interconnectedness, which we which we touched on, but um, a goal that you have within this value is to see the patient as part of, of a dynamic and beautiful whole, and bridging individual healing with collective transformation. And there's so there's so much there that um, 
I think we're lacking in society right now. And it's not to say that uh, psychedelics is the um, panacea for it, but um, I'm happy that, um, well, unless you think it is, but uh, (laughs) then we're getting into Timothy Lear territory maybe. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But I mean, mean, the the notion of it, and I think what psychedelics can imbue is that, and um, you know, the more that we can talk about those type of, those type of ideas more broadly in society, I think the better, I think we're going down this role, role of individualism and um, becoming more and more insular from society, from society and community. And that if psychedelics could be a catalyst for a broader conversation around uh, interconnectedness, I think that'll be better, better for everybody. I heard this term, that the young people are using these days. And uh, it just kind of took me aback around. Um, they now say, oh, it's really nice to see you, IRL. And I was like, <laughs> do, do you know what that is? Yeah, yeah. In real life, I assume. Right? In in real life, yeah. And I was like, wow, that's, what, that's where we're at now, you know, is that um, you see people more virtually than you do in real life. So um, that's, that's kind of scary. Um, so if, if I could pivot away um, from the work you're doing at University Health Network and just talk about uh, making the psychedelic uh, private sector and get your get your thoughts on where that that's currently at. Um, obviously, there's been a explosion of companies kind of getting into the space. And I, I'm not to say I'm skeptical, but it just seems as though... Uh, I guess my personal opinion from a business model is how do you, how how do you scale um, that business model in a way that's going to be successful from a, from a revenue perspective? Um, What, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Oh boy. Um, You know, I just think everybody should have a chance to try this therapy. Um, you know, you can have somebody with some knowledge sit with you for a couple of hundred dollars, or you can go into a, a field trip clinic, right, mm-hmm. where it'll be several, uh, you know, several thousand dollars for a course of treatment. Um, you know, the drugs are as diverse as ketamine, um, which is legal and widely mm-hmm. available now, um, to 5-MeO-DMT, which is hard to get and, um, and requires some, some real training to use. I just think everybody should have an opportunity to get them. And so I'm okay with all the commercial activity going on, all the all the get rich quick, early public mm-hmm. IPOs and things, yeah. because it's all going to benefit in the end, bringing, bringing some sort of treatment to market mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in some way. And because there's so much philanthropy in this space, companies like USONA and MAPS and the Can Foundation are going to make sure that these treatments are available in an accessible format for marginalized communities, for underserved communities, um, and that we will not allow patents to be given to um, to organizations for public for for freely available molecules like mm-hmm. psilocybin, MDMA, and 5-MeO-DMT are all um, either plants or or um, have been out of patent for for uh, decades. Mm-hmm. So. Um, 
fortunately, we're, there's there's a group of philanthropists standing together to mount legal challenges against companies like Atai and Compass that are mm-hmm. seeking to patent things just for the sake of patenting them, not because mm-hmm. they created any value. But so it's great that all this commercial activity is happening. Hey, it means that there's something there's something cool happening here. And um, so I'm just looking forward to the day that, oh, my God, Mark, the day the FDA legalizes either psilocybin or MDMA federally, mm-hmm. all hell's going to break loose in this mm-hmm. sector, right? Um, all these stocks are going to go up five, six X overnight. Uh, can't wait. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, um, did you... Did you follow that Tim Ferriss Christian Agenbauer debate that they had? It was it wasn't it was written. I I thought actually Christian um, patents aside, I thought he made some some valid arguments around the amount of private capital that has been uh, invested into the psychedelic sector is what is going to propel innovation and and I mean this this is the case for any sector. Um, however, I, I took issue with some of the yeah, the patentings that they're doing around like um, safe and comforting spaces for when you use oh, psychedelics. Mark, Mark, you don't need a, you don't need a single patent issued in psychedelics for psychedelics to become this wave of amazing treatments that make the world a better place to live in. Um, patents are irrelevant to this. Christian Angermeyer and, and his um, sort can argue this self-serving um, statements all they like that this is what's going to drive investment. No, having a treatment that works is what's going to drive mm-hmm. investment into this space because people want to be better and people want other people to be better. And you don't get $200 million of philanthropy <clears throat> into a space for a treatment that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's mm-hmm. the fact that it works that's 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 making all this happen. right? Um, uh, and that's the part that makes it so exciting. I, I don't know anybody who's tried it that hasn't been affected um by it hey i'll mm-hmm. ask you a different question on, yeah. on the subject of patents and, and investment and everything is what do you think of ketamine and it being called a psychedelic um i, I don't think it is a psychedelic um i, th- I think that yeah I, I don't think it is a psychedelic i don't think it has the the properties that a traditional psychedelic would have and I'm not exactly sure why it was labeled that way in the first place. And and it's interesting that it is called a psychedelic and it is, you know, it's, it's, it's used in clinics everywhere, you know, private clinics everywhere, I think even in public institutions. And so um, it's, it's kind of ironic that, you know, it, it being coined a psychedelic has also allowed it to be utilized um as a treatment modality what are you, what are your yeah. thoughts i get worried when people when i see a press release that says new psychedelic treatment center opening mm, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Know, it's and then you find out that it's ketamine well mm-hmm. ketamine is legal if it if it had it and it's not that it's not useful it is very useful for mm-hmm, lots of mm-hmm. different things but not in the way that um psilocybin and mdma are are useful for practically everybody who takes them because everybody's got some form of trauma that they've bottled up mm-hmm, inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's it's you know there's the question right now should should you encourage somebody who's depressed to try ketamine right I will I will offer you know any of my employees who want to try psilocybin as treatment for anxiety or depression I'll pay for it mm-hmm. um, because because I know it works right. 
ketamine is the thing that might work. SSRIs might work. Right. Psilocybin and MDMA, even if they don't cure your PTSD or your depression, they're going to make you a better person. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, at least that's been my experience. Yeah. Or they're going to open up uh, pathways, neural pathways that um, enable you to think about something in a, in a different way um, and transform your life that way. So, yeah, that, that's a that's an interesting one. And I just... Everywhere I look now, there's like a ketamine clinic and they're, they're calling it a psychedelic clinic. And then, no, 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 it's actually, it's ketamine's this placeholder for, you know, when psilocybin or, or MDMA becomes uh, legal to use for those clinics. So I don't know. I see it more as a, as a play for these companies to generate revenue, uh, market um, their companies and, um, use it in a way that's, or, or, or position in a way that it really isn't. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, we, we need to have, you know, I support all of the companies that are, that are developing ketamine clinics as, you know, doing something useful, but largely placeholders for, for when the real psychedelics become legal. I just don't want to get it confused in people's minds that, the that they're the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I'm I'm gonna um, I'm curious personally, and this is gonna sound like a Tim Ferriss interview, which I'm reluctant to uh, get into. I've now referenced Aston, Ashton Kutcher, the governing governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who's is he, no who's the guy on CNN, Chris Cuomo. Mm -hmm. I, I beat I beat Chris Cuomo to the first interview with you, and that's what I was saying. You know, if, if you would have got the media release out. Joe Ro Joe Rogan would have been knocking on the door, not me. So, but uh, your loss is my gain. So, um, wondering about a couple people that thinkers, you know, not 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 a family member. Who are some of the thinkers that have really influenced your your paradigm over the years? And what are some books that you know, if you were to recommend to the audience who are struggling or, or, or trying to, you know, come to some form of self-actualization that, that helped change your life? Um, well, on, in terms of psychedelics, certainly Michael Pollan's both, both of his books, the, the, how to change your mind and mm -hmm. the more recent one, um, your mind on plants, uh, oh, yeah. it actually really affected how I feel about caffeine. Like I, I'm not a coffee drinker, yeah. but it made me want to be a coffee drinker. So, oh really? And, I, haven't well, read, and, I, I haven't read the second one. I got to read it. Yeah, it also opens my eyes about mescaline as uh, one of the true psychedelics that doesn't get a lot of exposure. It used to be a lot more popular than it is now. Um, but fascinating, fascinating book to understand how these drugs can be used to examine different parts of your mind. You don't want to mm -hmm. permanently change your mental state, but just hey, experience a different state of consciousness for a little while, um, and you'll be you'll, you'll you might be pleasantly surprised. So I recommend how to change your mind for absolutely everybody uh -huh. um beyond that there's so much reading out there and i can't you know <laughs> so non-psychedelically victor frankel's book man's uh -huh. uh, search for meaning uh -huh. really changed how i looked at the world and maybe prepped me a little bit for the psychedelic journey um and then um siddhartha by herman Hess, the same thing you know uh -huh. like his main uh -huh. values were patience like just learning how to sit in one spot and not do anything turned out to be one of his most valuable skills. Uh, but the lesson from Siddhartha was that nobody can show you the path. You have to walk the path yourself. 
-hmm. And that's true with psychedelics. It's uh, true with any form of self-discovery. It's figure it out yourself. Read books, listen to potential gurus, listen to podcasts, of course, right? Listen mm -hmm. to, to Confronting the Madness. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to figure it out yourself. Every, every path is different, even though we're all walking the same, the same, uh, the same wilderness. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And Sanjay, it's been a, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, lovely to catch up. And uh, always enjoy your perspectives. And, and like I said, uh, sincere congrats on what uh, I don't think you should under understate in terms of the contributions that you've made to this field and also to hopefully providing access uh, to a new treatment modality that's going to help a lot of people in ways that they've never been helped before. So don't um, don't don't undersell that at all, because this is very significant and uh, Peter Mansbridge should be uh, reaching out and having you on, even if he's still around, I have no idea, but um, thanks, man. Uh, I'll, I will give him a call. <laughs>